Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I will provide you with guests and information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. So now, let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. First, I want to say if you're new to Movie Beat, the official Movie Beat website is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S. That's my name. That's RexSykes.com. And at the website there, you can subscribe uh, to the welcome page. There's an RSS feed, and you can subscribe. All of the interviews are archived at RexSykes Movie Beat at RexSykes.com. So you can go back. You can hear the very first interviews with guests all the way up to current. Now, the reason why I tell you this is because just recently, iTunes Store now archives are now catalogs and indexes, Rex Sykes Movie Beat podcasts. You can get the most recent. There are about 17 up there, uh, and this one will be up there later today. But uh, you, can get, you can get the recent ones, but you can't get the very early ones, or, the, or some 50, some 60, some interviews are, are still archived and available anytime, 24-7, at Rex Sykes Movie Beat uh, official website. So go to the interviews page, click on the archives, go in and scroll through, find the guests and topics that interest you, click on them, and inside those biography pages there uh, are the links to archived interviews. So uh, subscribe to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. You can also uh, become a fan of Rex Sykes Movie Beat at Facebook. Uh, you can also join the group there at uh, Facebook. So please go ahead and do those. I want to thank all of you who tweet and retweet about my guests and about the show and about the blogs and about upcoming events on Rex Sykes Movie Beat. I want to thank you uh, for promoting it on Facebook and MySpace and just all over the place. You've got my permission to uh, republish these links and interviews or uh, blogs in their entirety. Be, be sensitive to that and use good taste and judgment when you do so. But that way you help spread Movie Beat to your industry connections and your friends and to fans. If you're listening to this live, you can uh, make us a friend, you can make us a fan, you can leave comments, you can do so at the official site as well. I have just a few announcements, and then we're going to get into our topic today. Uh, let me first say that I was interviewed recently uh, for a book called Nightmare USA. It's a second volume, and uh, I don't know when that's going to be published, but I was interviewed about movie I did many years ago called Massacre at Central High. I've also had some other interviews that I've done, and I've posted two to, uh, to the Movie Beat site in the uh, interviews archive. It's uh, Rex Sykes remembers Massacre at Central High is the one that just came out in December of 2009, and the Rex Sykes interview, thank God you've graduated Massacre at Central High from 2008. So if, <laughs> there are so many Massacre fans, it surprises me, but uh, if you are, be sure to check those out. We've had fabulous interviews recently. We've got more great ones to come up 
uh, in the future after the first of the year, of course. But my guest today is Reed Martin, the author of The Real Truth. He'll be with us again next week uh, for part three of an ongoing series that I have with Reed, uh, a fascinating book, uh, a must-read book about the movie business, and uh, we'll be bringing him up in just a moment. But other guests that are coming up include Douglas Day Stewart. He's a screenwriter and director. He wrote Officer and a Gentleman, directed Thief of Hearts, Boy in the Plastic Bubble is one of his, uh, Blue Lagoon, and many, many more. Uh, he will be coming up in January, as will Patrick Girardi. He's post-production sound supervisor and re-recording mixer. We're going to talk about post-production sound and, audio, and uh, dialogue replacement. Peter Marshall, who's a first AD and director. He's the uh, author of our AD series here on Movie Beat. Um, we'll be coming back for a director's series. So uh, you're going to want to tune into that. John Reese is the author of Think Outside the Box Office, which is a, a great new book about hybrid forms of uh, distribution. Dallas Jenkins is the director of Kevin Sorbo's latest movie with Christy Swanson. He'll be here. Ted Hope, the independent producer uh, of uh, 21 Grams, The Dow Steve, and 60-some other movies will be here. And uh, as will Kevin Sorbo is coming back. Nick Mancuso will be coming back for the discussion on creativity and acting. Uh, Michael O'Keefe will be back, John Mendoza, and so many more. So stay tuned to Movie Beat. Uh, make sure you make us a favorite and, uh, and you subscribe uh, to podcast, and you'll never miss uh, an interview. Um, tonight and tomorrow and the next day, you've got just a couple days left here to uh, if you're in LA to see John Key's movie uh, Fall Down Dead at the Lamel Theater in Beverly Hills. It plays until the 24th of January, so be sure that you check that out. Um, also, the uh, Firestarter Films is coming up January 15th, 2010 in the Milwaukee area at Live Artist Studios. You're going to want to be sure to attend that, as well as in the, in the Milwaukee area at UW-Waukesha, the Field Film Fest will be Saturday, February 5th. This is a film festival that, that um, I started with uh, Firestarter Films and the UW-Waukesha, so uh, we're very proud to uh, be um, starting that festival in uh, 2010. There's uh, new blogs, new information at the Movie Beat website at RexSykes.com, so be sure that you go there and check it all out. And uh, I want to wish you all a happy holiday. We've got one more interview coming up before uh, the end of the year, and then we'll resume interviews. But you can listen again anytime. Go back, catch up on all those interviews that you might not have heard, and, um, and we'll meet back up uh, after uh, New Year's. So right now... Uh, it pleases me to bring on my next guest. He's interviewed Danny Boyle, Kim Pierce, Werner Herzog, Ted Hope, Christine Vashon, Christopher Nolan, Doug Lehman, Barbara Koppel, Ken Burns, and so many more for his book, The Real Truth, which is, as I said, a must-read book about uh, making movies. It's about what can go wrong, what's omitted, the kinds of errors and the omissions that people make uh, that screw up uh, their movie and the release of their movie, and what you can do to make sure that doesn't happen to you. So, uh, I'm happy to welcome today, uh, for this series on The Real Truth, author Reed Martin. Hi, Reed. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good, Rex. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's glad, great to have you back. I really enjoyed our conversation last time. got a lot of good feedback on that. Uh, people need to go and listen to that and find out what kinds of problems they can have on the set. We're going to talk today more about uh, the kinds of things that break a deal for distribution, Correct. That's right. There are so many of them. It's, uh, it, it, it could fill the Manhattan phone directory, but I think we'll cover a bunch of good ones today. All right. So, um, so, uh, so that our listeners who are tuning in live or for those who are listening you know, to an archived uh, podcast of this or, or at the website, um, 
what is the state of the industry today? Can you kind of uh, fill us in? I mean, movies, uh, you know, as a filmmaker, it's hard for people to get movies released. Uh, it's not like it was ten, five, even five years ago, but 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's a new world. What, what, what kind of landscape uh, what, or portrait, you know, can you paint for us about what's going on and, and why filmmakers today need to pay attention to what you're saying uh, so that they can get their movies marketed and distributed and marketed? Well, you know, the landscape is really shifting in a, in a lot of different ways simultaneously, and it's really important for independent filmmakers and aspiring independent filmmakers to know what's going to happen when they sort of step off the, uh, the moving sidewalk and when they get their films finished and they're planning to get them out into the marketplace. There are a lot of really exciting opportunities that are underway um, you know, with, with distribution on sites like Amazon's CreateSpace or DVD direct uh, DIY distribution with uh, DVD companies that handle the pick, pack, and ship. It's sort of an industry term for getting your DVD out there. A company called, uh, like Breakthrough Distribution is, is one of many. Um, but it's really important for filmmakers to know that the old ways and the old uh, aspirations and dreams may not be there when they, when they arrive at, uh, at Park City this year or next. And specifically, there are just, for starters, there are fewer distributors walking around with checks in hand. I mean, the last couple of years have seen the shuttering or shrinking of Miramax, Think Film, Picture House has closed, you know, New Line Cinema went out of business, um, Warner Independent Pictures was closed. Uh, in, in addition to that, um, <clears throat> there's also uh, Paramount Vantage is, is gone, even though they're trying to bring up a new, uh, a new company now to handle micro-budgeted films after the success of Paranormal Activity. But the reality of it is that there's really only Apparition, Roadside Attractions, uh, Fox Searchlight, and um, just a handful of others who are going to be at, at, at Sundance this year, you know, buying films. And the, the multiples that they're going to be buying the films for are not necessarily where they used to be. I mean, gone are the days of the big $10 million check that you could hold up like a publisher's clearinghouse uh, sweepstakes win with your production team. I mean, these days, if you get $200,000 for a minimum guarantee for your film, you're really, really lucky. In, in many cases, the distributors are just promising P&A and they're promising to release the films and they're not actually buying the films per se. Well, you're lucky if your movie was made for, say, $30,000, but if you made your movie for 5 or $10 million, then uh, you're in a considerable amount of trouble, wouldn't you say? Well, you're not necessarily in a considerable amount of trouble in every case, because if somebody's made a film for $5 million, they probably have cast and they probably have some international pre-sales or international uh, guarantees. But even okay. those are also under extreme pressure because the international pre-sales market was historically dependent on the health of the international uh, television broadcast uh, market. And so basically your film's prospects were based on how popular your actor was or was not um, on television in a local uh, territory, say of you know, one of 26 international territories. But these days, there's much more emphasis on indigenous independent films in okay. Europe and other countries. And so there's, more, there's less emphasis on just snapping up whatever American independent is on offer and more interest in, in nurturing the local independent film communities that, are, that have been sprouting up for the last couple of years. But yes, to answer your question, as I mentioned in, in my book, The Real Truth, um, 
it's very hard for filmmakers these days, especially if you've made a film that is, is in the middle range, say $1 million, $2 million, $3 million, you may only get a, a minimum guarantee of 200000 or or much less. And that is tough, yeah. Now, so uh, I want to remind people before we go on that the chat room is open, in case I didn't say that before. Uh, it's just fascinating. I mean, there's so much difference. I mean, people, you know, have to deliver their film. They have to make sure that it's 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 ready and that the distributors want it. We're going to talk in a moment about the kinds of things that break the deal for the distributors or why they won't pick up a film. But, I mean, there, there are, there's there got to be how, – how is the, the landscape now for unknown casts and, uh, uh, you know, genre films? I mean, you know, horror films, are they still doing good or, or well or, or, or what? Well, you happened? know, one of the – I guess, you know, one of the hallmarks of, of independent film over the years has been introducing new faces, and that's one of the most important uh-huh. – uh, things that independent films do is they sort of act as a farm team, if you will, for uh, you know for regular Hollywood. And a lot of times, you know, people get introduced uh, through their roles in, in lower budgeted films. Um, and 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 the good news for filmmakers also is that you know you can point to a dozen at least independent films that had no stars um, and and still did really well. I mean, Napoleon Dynamite certainly didn't have anyone in it that was of note and open water didn't have any any actors or cast that you could recognize and neither did cabin fever and, and a dozen other projects and they they all did well but the, yeah the, i guess and so it really is about a, a stellar moving emotional performance um if you can find uh the right person who, to to really knock it out of the park but the, the challenge for distributors these days is that the, the, the P&A is so expensive and the marketing is so expensive and the, the industry and the, the competition is so competitive that basically if, you don't have, if the marketing department doesn't have something to hang their hats on, um, very often they can pass on a project. And one of the easiest things to, to go with if you're uh, an independent film marketer is cast and just sort of try to rustle up the, uh, that actor's um, core audience. So that's one of the things that gives you know film uh, film distributors, excuse me, a safety net, and that's one of, that's one of the things that that they'll be looking for. Of course, in the last couple of years, I mean, Sundance has become such a star-studded affair that it's really kind of made it tougher for people who have a really intimate and personal story with great actors, but who who may not yet be known. So. Um... You know, when I read your book, you know, I mean, you've got so much in there, and um, one of the things that I noticed is, is, and we'll have to talk about this probably more in, in another interview, but, but a distributor might pick up your film and decide to release it on X amount of theaters, and then, you know, you've got like a week of, of proving ground. I mean, at that point, they might decide to increase the amount of theaters, or they might pull it, but if they do increase it. I mean, it, there's there's money that's being spent. So I mean, it, it it sounds like you know filmmakers today are in 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 no less a precarious position than other in than in other times. But it does seem that um, there's so much riding on the release of of your movie as an independent, uh, and anything can go wrong to screw it up. Well, as I as I point out in the real truth. Filmmakers can be empowered these days. There are so many tools so that filmmakers don't just have to hand over their project to a distributor and then keep their fingers crossed that they don't get crushed. I mean, most recently we saw that Avatar's weekend box office was um, diminished significantly by the enormous snowstorm that hit the, the, the Northeast. And so a lot of people were just basically snowed in or you know, felt like, well, I'll stay, stay home. Now, what that can do is if the film 
potentially has reviews that, that they may not uh, be impressed with, then that might keep them away from seeing the film in the second week. And by that time, also, word of mouth has had a chance to, to spread around. But filmmakers don't have to necessarily leave it to distributors. And when they're negotiating the sale of their film, or in this case, I guess, the distribution of their film, because sale is kind of a tenuous possibility. And I want to underline that a lot of filmmakers just refuse to accept that. They just kind of scoff and say, well, no, that's, that's ridiculous. That's not the case, because it undercuts the dream that they've had for all these years of getting paid, getting rich, and having that Horatio Alger story at a festival. And if you tell them, well, no, the reality these days is that you can, you'll, you'll be lucky if you get a release and you get distribution, people just don't want to hear it. But back to, the, back to empowering filmmakers, what they can do is they can ask a distributor, when do you think this film should be released? What season of the year up against what films? I mean, the release dates of films are staked out a year or two years in advance in many cases. And obviously, you don't want to go up with your independent romantic comedy on the same weekend that there's a Sandra Bullock romantic comedy uh, in release or you know, some other film that might take away from, from your box office or from the interest in your project. And so you can actually go on uh, professionally if you have access to RentTrack. It's RentTrack.com. Or if you go to a consumer site like MovieWeb.com, which is a terrific site of publicity materials and release dates and all kinds of extras. And it's just great stuff. It's almost like a, a, DVD, a shop of DVD extras, all for, the, for, for free, at movieweb.com. You can scroll forward and look at release dates, in some cases two years ahead, and you can see what's scheduled for a particular weekend. And then if you're in negotiations with a distributor, you can much more intelligently say, well, I don't think this is a good weekend for us to go out if you're thinking that we should go in, in October of, of, of 2010 or 2011 or whenever it is because, you know, this, this other film that's very competitive to ours and a studio-produced project will, is scheduled for that same date. So that's one of the things that you can do um, to, to be empowered there. But, but also, um, you know, whether or not the film has a platform release or a wide release, a platform release is where you sort of start in, in two cities, typically New York and Los Angeles, and then you kind of walk it out uh, from there, depending on its success. Um, you know, some, some other films, for whatever reason, may warrant a bigger release. And typically, you want to try to see if you can guarantee uh, 15 markets. It's, more, it's less about the number of theaters or the number of screens, but you want to get a guarantee in your, in your distribution agreement for a certain number of markets and a certain level of release. And that's, that's um, one of the things that people don't focus on because they just sort of take the distributor's word for it. They don't really think about um, trying to push back or trying to you know, name some deal terms that they would like. What they're really focused on is that million-dollar check. I mean, uh, Tom Bernard, who's the, the uh, co-president of Sony Pictures Classics, tells a story in The Real Truth about how he meets filmmakers, and he typically asks them, what do you want for your movie? And he, he wants to hear from them how they want a specialized distributor to handle it in a certain way with a certain delicate touch or they want a certain type of marketing or a certain marketing message. And instead what he hears is, a million dollars. So filmmakers are just fo so focused on getting their, their back rent and their uh, health insurance paid, which are legitimate, legitimate uh, things to, to want, certainly, in this economy especially. But they're, they're so focused on recouping the, their costs that they don't think about what's best for the film. And that's really what they need to focus on. Well, what I really, really uh, like, what I really love, actually, about your book is the fact that you paint a realistic picture of what's going on now, and daunting that it may be, and you, and you show where and how things are broken and where or how people break things. But you do 
also show the filmmaker or the, and the reader, but the filmmaker, you know, how to take their power back and what they need to do in order to to make a difference and to, you know, to optimize their chances in in getting a sale on their film or or getting, uh, you know, their picture distributed. So. You know, you prov- you provide both sides really, really well, and I and I appreciate that. Um, and, and this for me is fascinating to to listen to you talk. Um, but let's go with what are the things that the people do that really destroy their chances of, of getting a, a a release, a, a distributor a distributor to pick it up. Well, one of the, the things. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> one of the one of the things that really lets down uh, filmmakers is photography. That's one of the things that people just don't think about. They think, well, you know, I don't need to have an on-set photographer. I'm not going to, you know, have that extra expense of having a, a photographer on set every day of the shoot. That's just extravagant and wasteful. Um, I would rather have my cousin do it with a, his pocket camera. You know, so they get somebody with a seven megapixel, you know, camera that they picked up at Radio Shack. Um, they have them snap a few shots here and there, and maybe one day they'll splurge and have a have a photographer with a 35 millimeter, you know, with a decent SLR um, or, or or a really high end, you know, 16, 20 megapixel uh, digital camera come on board and, and and shoot some scenes. Now, where that where that can undo a distribution deal is because the there's not adequate photography when the marketing department of a distributor is is considering picking up the film. And once again, as I say in the real truth, if the distributor's marketing department can't see a way to sell the the picture to audiences, they won't pick it up no matter how excited the acquisitions executives may be because there's just no way to get people to see it. Audiences these days are very finicky and very skeptical and would rather stay home or wait for it to come on Netflix or they've got a hundred other options. Maybe they're playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 or who knows what else that they're doing. Um, you know, they're on Facebook several hours a day. So they can, you know, pretty much wait uh, to see what's on offer in, in these other venues. And the marketing department really has to convince an audience these days to really, really make an effort to get out of the house, get a babysitter, um, and then drive to the theater and go see something. And to do that, you need compelling images. Now, if you've got a bleak, challenging uh, movie and you only have bleak and challenging images, that may not be a decent enough sell, quote-unquote, to get people off of their couches because they need to have some kind of optimistic hopeful possibility, even in a bleak, challenging, independent film, you have to have some images that show that there's the possibility of success. I mean, if you think about the marketing of Precious, they're not showing the, the, the poster of the film and the marketing of the film is not focused on the most harrowing moments of that, of that movie. The, the Academy Award marketing in Variety may have a still of, of one of the more challenging scenes, but certainly the, the, the marketing to get people to see the film is not, is not going to be that. And without those photographs taken, it's very hard if you haven't shot them on the set during uh, scenes or running a scene again so that the photographer can capture it on, in still, still footage or still frame. Um, it's very hard to recreate that later. In some cases, it's impossible to get the, the actors or the leads back in costume to a location where you could stage the shot. It's just, it's just logistically impossible. And in other cases, you know, they may have cut their hair, they may have moved on from the character. It's very hard to capture true images. And people also forget, aspiring independent filmmakers also forget that the poster from the film is usually called from 
the perfect still frame from the shoot that really sells the idea of the story or sells the story in one perfect image or several images collaged together. And if you don't have those images, then you can also be dead in the water. And, and it's, it, it happens. It has happened several times at festivals where a promising film was just on the fence and they lost their distribution deal because they had no marketing material. So filmmakers need to become sort of madmen, if, if you will. They need to put themselves, or mad women, I guess, and put themselves in the, in the mind of an advertising executive and think about what it's going to take to actually sell their film to audiences. And a lot of filmmakers think, you know, they think, well, it's not about the box office. I don't want to be a sellout. You know, I, I'm, about, I'm a filmmaker. I'm an artist. I'm not going to think about those considerations. But it's so competitive these days that that sort of arch, in some cases, pretentious position is really, um, is really detrimental to the, to the possibilities of the film. I mean, if you think about it, you might have the best independent film ever made, and no one would ever know about it if audiences don't go to see it. I mean, it goes back to my favorite quote from Pulp Fiction, which is, sewer rat may taste like pumpkin pie, but I'll never know. And in, in many cases these days, that's the attitude that audiences have. So photography is absolutely critical. Another place where independent filmmakers shoot themselves in the foot is with music rights. In the darkest night of the soul, where everything is crashing down and the project looks like it's never going to happen, and the director is alone in his or her apartment with uh, cold Thai food and, and 120 pages and a few screenplay brads, and that's it. Maybe they, maybe they just got dumped by their girlfriend or boyfriend, and everything is crashing down around them, and the rent is due, and the phone just got shut off and everything else. Music is what keeps the project alive, because music allows aspiring screenwriters or aspiring filmmakers to visualize what their film is going to look like. They, they, very often filmmakers have the, the ideal song chosen for the opening credits and for the closing credits, especially even though they haven't written one page of screenplay dialogue. They still have that. They still have the song all picked out. Or maybe it's the song that that they and their significant other used to used to listen to and, and, and it's really the foundation for the for the project itself because the film is secretly a love letter to somebody they used to go out with. So, you know, the song is very important to people. Now what the problem is and where it all breaks down and where it can undo a distribution deal at a festival is because getting music clearance rights is enormously expensive. It's not expensive to get festival rights. That can be as low as $100. But once the song has been cut to picture and it's in a film and you're at a festival and someone wants to buy it, the clearance rights can go up to $500,000 in some cases or a million dollars in some cases. Now, even if the filmmaker has something that's not as widely known as the Rolling Stones or David Bowie's Heroes or something like that, a, you know, a, a song something like Elton John that would be in the million dollar range on the very low end the clearance rights for music are 15,000 uh per song it, and there's two different rights that need to be cleared so it's actually 30,000 per song and in some cases 60,000 per song so those are really the multiples that people are playing with and if you think about it 30,000 per song times 10 well all of a sudden the film has a $300,000 liability that it's facing when the, the movie's going to get picked up. And a lot of filmmakers erroneously believe that the distributor will just suddenly wave a magic wand and the music rights will be paid for, or that somehow a soundtrack deal will cover the cost of the music rights because the record companies, they think wrongly, will be happy to have their song in our movie, and it's just not the case. It's just not how things work. If you talk to an actual distributor, and I spoke to the presidents of Sony Classics and Fox Searchlight and uh, the president of Apparition, Bob Burney, 
And you can read what they say in the real truth, straight from the horse's mouth. It is up to the filmmaker to clear music rights. It is not something that the distributor handles. And so basically at festivals every year, you have this subprime mortgage crisis when films get picked up and all the money that comes out of the minimum guarantee goes for clearing the rights of the music. And so all the investors and all the uh, people associated with the film don't see any of it. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of a heavy bummer for people to, to realize, but the answer is simple. The answer is very simple. It's not bleak and it's not, it doesn't mean that people shouldn't follow their dreams. It just means that filmmakers should be their own A&R executives. They should discover cool local bands who sound like the next Elliott Smith or, or the next band that they really like, you know, be it uh, Mary Lou Lord or Dubstar or Grant Hart or whoever it is, somebody who really sort of um, would be happy to have their music in, in a song and license it for, for less, or an up-and-coming local artist who you know, would really love a break to, to be able to write a song for a film and come out with some, some new music that is just innovative and creative as the, as the film they just made. And, and that way they just save hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on clearance costs. Well, I know that there are listeners right now who, have, who are probably saying, geez, you know, I wish I would have known this then. You know, we, I think, you know, many of us have encountered situations either where, you know, we don't have the pictures, we don't have the rights to the music. There's something that, uh, you know, has prevented uh, them or us from, from getting movies um, purchased and, and distributed. Let me take a short break, and then we're going to come right back. I just want to say to everybody that you're listening to RexSykes.com. I'm sorry, you're listening to RexSykes Movie Beat. The official website is RexSykes.com. Uh, this interview and many of the others are now available at the iTunes store. You can just search for Rex Sykes, Rex Sykes Movie Beat, or Movie Beat, and, uh, and you'll be able to listen to oh, the dozen or more recent interviews as a podcast. Those will always be updated from this point on, and all the rest of the interviews, the 70 we've done this year, are all archived at RexSykes.com, the official Movie Beat site. And you're listening right now. Uh, to me with my guest, Reed Martin, discussing The Real Truth, his book, and Distribution Deal Breakers. Um, what I wanted to say is, is, is uh, this, and that is um, I have, over the past few years, worked on numerous features or projects where uh, the very things that you have described are, have been issues or where I have kind of tried to cajole people and say, look, you need to be taking pictures, you need an on-set photographer, you need somebody, you need to be promoting your movie, you need to be thinking about your electronic press kit or your hard copy press, you need to, and they just go, ah, you know, I don't have time, I don't have the, you know, I'll get to that when I get to it, I'm making my movie, you know, and uh, and so I have, I've seen that firsthand, I've, I've been involved with some projects like that, I, I was involved uh, co-producing a short, which, uh, while I think it needs to be severely edited uh, to make it more um, palatable, I mean, in, in terms of its timing. Uh, it was a cute little thing that was done, and we did it. Uh, uh, I wanted to produce it because I saw somebody's work and thought it would make a great short film. Uh, so we produced it for the writer-director, and, um, and then he wanted a particular piece of music for the short and insisted on it and would do nothing else. And it was an Elvis Costello piece, and, of course, he could never get the rights to it. And so... Uh, and and uh, you know I wasn't about to pay the, the money that they wanted for this short uh, movie, so it sits in oblivion and and cute though it may be, and you know it's not going anywhere because he won't consider the thought of putting a different song there. 
Well, you know, that's a really good point that you make, Rex, because there are a lot of films, and this podcast is not just for aspiring screenwriters and aspiring directors. If you're an aspiring producer and you're within the sound of my voice, Superman, <laughs> then you need to know that one of the ways that you can lose control of your film is to grant the director final cut with regards to music rights, because that's one of the best ways for a director who's completely out of his or her mind to hold the film hostage by saying they won't grant their final cut approval unless the film has the songs that they want. And in some cases, it's a song for the end credits when people outside of L.A. are walking out of the theater, which is the most mind-boggling thing. So if you wanted a song like David Bowie's Heroes, let's say, for the end credits, you are easily looking at a $1 million, not kidding, a $1 million rights clearance cost for a film that most people aren't even going to hear and that may not even have as much of a, an emotional wallop as as, as the director or the core production team might think. And so that is really a key clause in any producer's deal with a filmmaker that they're going to give a chance to to make their first or second film because they have to know what songs does the director envision having in the movie. Uh, similarly, for investors, one of the, one of the ways that, that film investors can, can find out if they're ever going to make any money investing in a, in a low-budget film is just simply to ask for a list of the songs that the production team would like to have in the movie. And if there's even one major recognizable song on there that you would hear on the radio, they're looking at a, at a, at a huge, huge problem. Um, you know, another, another area, it's interesting that you, you bring up the, the photography issue. Um, in, in The Real Truth, I talked to Laura Lau, who was the producer with her husband, Chris Kentis, of Open Water, which was a huge success. And she told me for the book, and it's, it's in there in the chapter on, uh, on marketing, how she had her cousin do all the photography on set. And unfortunately, uh, the cousin was using an actual SLR camera, but was not a professional, professional photographer. And so all of the photos were overexposed and blown out. And they thought, okay, well, it's no problem. You know, we can pull still frames from the, from the film itself. Well, they shot, um, they shot on mini-DV, and the blow-ups from the film just looked terrible. And that movie was a success, but if you looked at the time when the film came out, I remember this specifically, that the photography in the New York Times and, and in other publications of the, the two lead actors with the sharks was not as compelling because it was completely blurry. There were jaggies. There were, you know, there were the digital... Um, pixelation that you see when you blow up uh, images that are not really ever meant to be blown up. And it just looked terrible, and it made the film look like, you know, somebody's home movie or somebody's flip camera vacation footage as opposed to a compelling, scary story that it actually was. And, you know, who's to say how much the film was let down by that? But she says that if, you know, had she done it again she would have had somebody on set with a, with a professional photographer on set for every day of the shoot because you never really know when you're going to capture that magic moment. And, and photography really can undo a distribution deal. It is absolutely the case if you ask any number of acquisitions executives. They can tell you the ghost stories never told that are included in the real truth about how that's happened. Well, I think the other thing is, is that people don't realize how many pictures they have to take. I'm, so, I'm sorry, I missed that last part. Sorry about that. I said, that's okay. I said, I, I don't think people realize how many pictures they actually have to take because people will be culling from those pictures looking for the right ones. And if, you know, if you say, well, here are my hundred photos, uh, you have less chance of, of 
you know, getting the pictures that they need than if you have thousands of photos. And, and from all of my dealings, uh, whenever I talk to people, they talk about, uh, especially if you're dealing with name stars and things like that, that people have, you know, rights of refusal for certain photos and, and percentages and things like that. So we're talking about making a point of, of, of doing it professionally and having lots and lots of, of good pictures taken. That's a great point you bring up, Rex, because as, as you mentioned, uh, if you have stars in your low-budget independent film, they or their agents may have a certain percentage of what are called kills. So right. the agent or the actor can say, well, I don't like, I don't like how I look in this, in this photo, even though you think it's the best photo, even though you think it's a great shot for the poster, I don't think that's my best side, or I look fat, or whatever their complaint may be. And on the flip side, the other actor may have a percentage of kills. So getting a photo that satisfies the actor and the actor's agent and the actor's mom or whomever they're sharing right. the images with can be a real headache and a real hurdle. And that's why you definitely need, in some cases, a thousand at least photographs to be able to pull, to pull from. And you also never, never know where that iconic shot is going to come from. If you look at the press materials for No Country for Old Men, there really is that um, that iconic shot of, of Anton Chigurh as he's walking down the uh, the row of, of the motel, and that really kind of spells it out what the film, what the sort of the emotional uh, beat, the emotional uh, valence of the of the project, and you never really know in something so mundane and something so sort of casual as the guy leaving his motel room that that's going to turn out to be the, the iconic shot that really sells the movie. And so you never really know when you're going to get that, and you have to have a photographer who's there all the time to be able to capture that moment. Excellent point. And, and the, the thing that I keep coming across, and the reason why I do Movie Beat, and I know the reason why you, know, you did your book, The Real Truth, um, you know, is to help filmmakers and to help them do things right and, and to learn what to do and what not to do. One of the things that I, that I always maintain is that Hollywood evolved the system over the years, right or wrong, good or bad. They've evolved, you know, because filmmaking is really manufacturing with a creative component. And, you know, it, they, they created this system and they have all of these people. And, yes, some of it's unionized, but each person has a position. And the, the trouble with Mavericks and the trouble with independence today, I think, is that they, they try to say, well, I won't do it, Hollywood, and so I will wear all the hats. Instead of having a producer, a director, you know, the, the people who uh, – a business person, because sometimes creatives aren't the best people in making you know, the business decisions they need to make up front and early on in order to get their, their creative work – to the public, and and I think there's a there's a, a legitimate reason for saying you know what I'm going to follow the format in making sure that I I get the right side on the business side of my movie down, and I'm going to make sure I've got the right side of the creative stuff down on my movie, and I'm going to blend those two, and I'll do my independent you know my own independent film um, this way, and you know whatever voice it has, but but you. But I think people need to really embrace the idea that this is a business and they have to be business smart uh, if they if they want to see success. While there might be that one, you know, long shot that you hear about, or, or I think something that you address in your book, too, which which uh, is that there's a certain amount of mythology about all these breakthrough films that when, when it boils down to it, they really didn't happen the way uh, the urban legends now we're entrenched in following, you know, that so-and-so made it and it was, you know, 
you know where I'm going with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're, that's absolutely the case. In, in fact, I mean, I interviewed Neil Labute, who is nobody's more keeping it real as far as being edgy and gritty and challenging to distributors. And he actually says in The Real Truth, he told me, um, you know, everybody, all these independent filmmakers that he meets go around saying, you know, oh, it's not about the box office and I'm trying to make, you know, a challenging film and it's artistic and I'm not going to, you know, sell out on all these things. But he says, then why are you making a film? I mean, you're making a film not so you can show it in your basement for a couple of friends on your computer monitor or your, your HD TV. You're showing it so that your your art and your message and the uh, the moving cinematic experience that you've spent so many years trying to create will actually be seen by people and be affecting and and you'll be able to make a second film if it does well and he you know he actually says that that's that's really uh, a mistaken position to take and i think what a lot of filmmakers don't count on is the is the sort of terrifying dolly zoom of regret <laughs> remind me of that term for my second volume of the real truth but there is a there's a dolly zoom of regret when filmmakers realize that the that many hats that they've worn have spread them so incredibly thin that they have dropped the ball in a really important area that was totally avoidable. I mean, that's one of the things about the, the independent film world that is so disappointing and heartbreaking, what I tried to address in, in the 540 pages of, of, of the book, is that all of these problems are avoidable. And all right. of the ways that people think that certain films got made, yes, it's absolutely not the case. And typically, filmmakers don't hear about these ghost stories never told of how their favorite iconic independent film crashed and burned and had to be rescued or almost didn't get finished or almost didn't get released for whatever reason. Maybe they gutted their post-production budget to, to just finish the project or a hundred other things. And that's really what I think is so important about our conversations here on Rex Sites Movie Beat is because we have to get the word out to people that there are a hundred things that can go wrong, and if you can think of ten, you're a genius, as Mickey Rourke famously said in Body Heat to William Hurt. And it's the same thing in independent film. You really have to take these considerations into account. And if there's an independent film distribution executive who's telling you what they need to market a film, that's really contingent. The, the marketing materials in your delivery schedule and your delivery items at the end of the, of the festival the money that is dispersed, even if your film is bought at a festival, is only 10% of the total amount because the distributor is going to wait and see if they have all of the materials they need, all the sound elements, all the marketing materials, and if you can't satisfy that delivery schedule, then your deal is undone. And that happens a lot every year. You don't always hear about it because people are too embarrassed to, to, to say, this happened to me, but it does happen, and it happens every year. Now, we're going to come back and, and, and in future shows, and, and I would like for you to address some of those crash-and-burn stories or some of the myths that are out there that, you know, so-and-so made their movie on a dime and, you know, it became this multi-million dollar, you know, uh, blockbuster when, when in reality some of that's just more marketing hype than anything else. But um, there are, when you talk about deliverables, you know, we've talked about photos, we've talked about music, there are all the paper releases as well, you know, cast releases and location releases and, and a lot of other things that need to be accounted for. Um, but we've got about, you know, 15 minutes left here, and 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 there's also the notion of something about the trailer that you, you touched on a little bit before in the photography, in, 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 about the photography, but uh, what is it about the trailer that needs to be there in order for someone to help sell their movie. Well, you know, one of the one of the things that can help aspiring independent filmmakers 
in several areas is to actually cut a trailer for a film that doesn't exist yet. It helps with their sales pitch to investors if they can visualize the film. And to back up this assertion in the book, I interviewed Seth Gordon, who was the director of The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters, and then later went on to do Four Christmases uh, with Vince Vaughn. He talks about how when he was making The King of Kong and he was trying to get it set up, it was a very hard sell to potential investors to say, hey, I'm making a documentary about two guys who stand in front of a Donkey Kong console, uh, a Donkey Kong cabinet for 90 minutes, and it's, it's, it's somehow uh, as thrilling as, as ESPN HD and the best competitive sports uh, you'll ever see, and people just couldn't visualize it. So he cut a trailer with some footage that he shot, and he said it helped him enormously. It also helped him in terms of framing the story uh, of his film because he knew the beats and the elements and the emotional uh, moments that he had to capture during the actual production because he knew that he had to have that um, that arc and sort of that journey, that, that distance from A to B um, it, when he actually shot the film. And so it can be very helpful in a lot of reasons. And ultimately, which is the big surprise of this story that he tells, the trailer that he shot to actually raise money for the film was actually the final trailer that was used by Picture House when they released The King of Kong. So you can see that as a DVD extra on, on the movie, and with the addition of a couple of titles, it's pretty much the same thing that they, that they start out with, and that's absolutely critical. But the one thing that really lets people down on the trailer front, especially with independent film these days, is that they don't think to shoot one scene or one moment of uplift or something positive happening or some kind of opportunity for a success of the lead character, or some kind of possibility. And if you do that, you can undo your distribution deal. Why? Because the marketing department looks at the materials, looks at all everything that's been shot, and says, I can't make a trailer out of this, because it's one pummeling image after another. And again, if you go back to, you know, I talked to Anna Bowden for The Real Truth, who was the co-writer and editor of, of Half Nelson and the co-director of Sugar uh, with Ryan Fleck, and when they were making Half Nelson, you know, they shot some important scenes, some important, funny, positive, light moments to sort of counterbalance and counterweight the heavier, more serious stuff that's in that, in that film. And it's just really key. If, you're, if your actor is going to die at the end or if they're going to have just an unremittingly bleak future, you at least have to leaven it with possibility. It, you can't the marketing department of an independent film distributor cannot sell despair. And they need to show audiences that it's not pointless to spend two hours with this person. And that's what audiences do. If you think about the, a film that you've seen and you sit there at the end and you say, well, why did I just, you know, why did I just sit here with this person for all this time? A, mo a recent movie that comes to mind is, um, is A Serious Man by the Coen brothers. I mean, it, it, not to give it away, but it's sort of it's it's a little bit bleak and a little bit challenging. But there are humorous and funny and light moments along the way to kind of leaven the story, and certainly for the trailer to make people realize that they're not going to be pummeled uh, for the 90 minutes or two hours that they're that they're sitting there. So that's something that you have to think about not at the very end. You have to think about that from the script stage or from the storyboarding stage or from the shooting stage. Uh, standpoint that okay we're going to film this one light moment we're not selling out we're not you know we're not undercutting the veracity or the realness of the story we're still keeping it real but at least we're going to have some nice light moment um, where the lead character might have some success or might have the possibility of success another example that comes to mind is jimmy cliff in the autobiographical reggae dance hall story the harder they come 
um, you know, everybody knows that he dies at the end of that movie. He's shot down on the beach at the end. But for one moment, he gets to drive a Cadillac across a golf course and sort of, you know, race around in this borrowed Cadillac uh, in, the, in the golf course adjacent to the Hilton Hotel. And for that one moment, at least, when he's scattering the birds and having a, a lovely moment in the sun, he has, he's triumphed against adversity. And it's really important to include uh, at least a moment of that or a glimpse of it in your independent film. Well, I think that the problem that many people have is that um, they think of counterexamples to everything, and they, they, they use that to hang their hat on rather than thinking about you know, the, the 99 examples of why they shouldn't do what they're trying to do. Um, you know, I think you, know, you can look at Rocky, for example, and go, Rocky was successful, and it, and it was inspirational, and the guy you know, triumphed over adversity. I'm not even talking about the trailer. I'm just talking about the movie. You know, and, and, and it was successful because he succeeds in the end. And, uh, and you know, leaving Las Vegas was, succeeded, but it was a very dire movie. And, and yet some people will say, well, I don't have to do you know, this kind of they'll, – they'll look at it as formulaic and say, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do this. I don't want to do that. I, you know, I'm, I'm this maverick. And, and they go their own way because they have some one example of something that broke the mold and think that they're going to do likewise. And while they may, I, I think they just need to realize that the odds are not in their favor. Well, you can, I can cite those two films that you mentioned as examples, and I can tell you where there are scenes that you can use in the trailer of success. In Leaving Las Vegas, there's a, a sequence when he goes to the casino toward the end of the, the, I guess the middle of the third act, toward the end of the film, where he actually is playing craps, and he wins twice. And everybody, he, he gets this huge crowd around him, and then he's winning, and he can pump his fists in the air, and he's winning a huge amount of money. So there is a moment where essentially he, can, he could turn things around if he used the money for things other than booze. And in Rocky, one of many examples, um, you know, where he catches the chicken that, that uh, Burgess Meredith, as Mick, is, is telling him to catch, and he can't catch it, he can't catch it, he can't catch it. And then in slow motion, against the setting sun, he catches the chicken, and it's this big, glorious victory, kind of a silly victory, given what's at stake. But he has this, you know, this... this uh, victory over adversity in that moment and also certainly the humor that's derived from the ice skating scene with the guy on the Zamboni yelling five minutes so you know there are moments of 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 lightness and especially you know a gritty tough film like Half Nelson that a lot of aspiring filmmakers point to these days there are the classroom scenes where um, Ryan Gosling is really connecting with the students or saying oh no you didn't you know and kind of making jokes and and having sort of a real rapport uh, with those students, and those those serve to leaven some of the tougher, grittier scenes that that you know that are all over that movie. Oh, those are awesome examples. I appreciate that. Now we're, we we've got oh about seven minutes left, and the next time we get together, the next interview, we're going to talk about you know how to succeed at a film festival, what to do, what not to do if you're going to Sundance or Con or to any film festival, who you need to know, what you need to do, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, and and what can impede your progress uh, when you show up? But one of those things, you know, is bad behavior. But bad behavior can also break up a distribution deal. Can you can you kind of address that for now? Well, it can. I mean, the thing that I, I talk about in in my book, The Real Truth, is you know, <laughs> once the film starts cutting together, and once it looks like uh, it's going to be a real thing, and once people get into a festival, they stop uh, thinking of themselves as the put upon Steve Buscemi 
in uh, living in oblivion, and they start thinking of themselves as the imperial Francis Ford Coppola in Hearts of Darkness. And, and, and those two films, and also uh, the documentary Overnight, which kind of tracks the, uh, the rise and fall of Troy Duffy uh, when he was trying to get Boondock Saints uh, released, are really instructive. And what I talk about in The Real Truth is this kind of ego and attitude just has no place. It never had any place, but it certainly has no place these days when things are so competitive. And when you're going to be working with a distributor, distributors are also factoring in when they're going to pick up your film, you know, can I deal with this person? Are they going to be intractable? Are they going to be impossible? Are they going to refuse to do press? Um, am I going to have a problem with them? And do I really want to get in bed with them for the next two years as we, you know, head down the road together uh, to, to make this film connect with audiences? And if somebody is doing their best Quentin Tarantino Im- impression or they think they are, you know, uh, God love them, Werner Herzog, but there's a reason there's only one Werner Herzog. And, you know, uh, if you think about what happened to, um, you know, to some of these directors of renown, even Hal Ashby, if you read the Hal Ashby book, Being Hal Ashby, you can see how some of his hardline positions and being intractable really got him in trouble with the powers that be. And toward the end of his life, even though he had directed, uh, you know, Coming Home and classics like Harold and Maude, I mean, the, he couldn't uh, get arrested, unfortunately, because he was such a stickler um, for detail. Now, if you're Ridley Scott, okay, then you can sort of make demands and things like that. But if you're attending your first or second Sundance and you've got a film that is getting some buzz and might get distributed, there's there's really a sense of humility and... Um, you know, just basic manners that, that that really have to come into play because it's really all about people and there is that sort of uh, personality equation that factors into it. And if the distributor doesn't think that they can work with you uh, for whatever reason, then they may make an emotional gut decision and think, well, this film isn't that great when in fact the the real thing that's informing that decision is just, oh my God, this person is a nightmare. I don't think I could I could deal with this. Well, I'm going to say something that I probably shouldn't, and that is for actors uh, to not necessarily follow this advice. But as an actor in Hollywood, one of the things that you learned early on was you needed to be real nice up front until they had enough footage in the can so that they couldn't replace you, and then you could start making demands. And and while, and I don't suggest that that is a formula today because you know you can get a reputation very quickly, you know, for being difficult or or whatever. But but. The point that you made is 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 a is a, st- is a stellar one as far as I'm concerned. In that, you know, you need to be nice. You need to work within the system, even if you're outside the system. I believe that there are always powers that be, regardless of where you are in your station in life. You're going to deal with somebody who's bigger or, or taller, or more has more money, or has more power, or has more influence in some way. And so, if you are a filmmaker, you need to learn to play that game you know you need to accentuate your advantages and diminish your losses or or the downside you know you you want to optimize the things you can do for success and and minimize the things that'll hold you back and some of the points that you made today i mean i think you know the distributor somebody who wants to buy a movie has got thousands of people you know submitting things to them they are in the business to make money they want to make money they want to get rich they want to have and if you present something and it's not uh, you know, if they look at it and they can't figure out how to market it, they just pass and go to the next one. Well, it's even more important these days, and I'm glad you, you brought that up, Rex, because this is something that, pe- that filmmakers forget. 
If they're not getting minimum guarantees at a festival, if they're not getting advances, if their films aren't being bought, quote-unquote, and you only have to look to last year's Toronto Film Festival, not one film got picked up at the festival. So that is absolutely the case. There are no advances flying like in the old days, the old days of Hustle and Flow or Happy Texas or Hamlet 2, these $10 million buys. That has just gone away. It doesn't exist anymore. That is a bygone era. So the success and the payday and the money that people get from their films, and this speaks to what we're talking about today, comes from the theatrical exhibition, or exploitation as some in the business might say, of the project. The filmmaker's only upside is 50% of the theatrical gross or the DVD or the ancillary revenue. So in that case, it is absolutely more critical for filmmakers to become you know, their own sort of advertising executives and think about what can we do to get as they say, butts in seats to get people to show up to this movie. And they better embrace all the sort of, you know, established, successful, quantitative-focused Hollywood mechanisms and paradigms for making their film a success. Paranormal Activity was not a huge monster success because it was scary. There are plenty of scary movies out there that just never see the light of day and never get released. It got the huge reception it did because it was very carefully and elegantly marketed. Um, people say the Blair Witch Project was a huge success because of its internet marketing campaign. No, that's not the case. It was because it was marketed as sort of a precursor to reality television before the days of Survivor and before uh, the real world. And so it was reality TV before reality TV had hit, and it was marketed as such, and that's why it caught on. It wasn't the internet that made that film a success. And the proof in the pudding of that is how come there hasn't been another Blair Witch Project that was successful because of its internet campaign. I mean, there's certainly thousands of film-related websites out there. And again, in terms of the, in terms of the, um, the, the, the best behavior <laughs> part of it, what I say in the real truth is you don't have to be taken advantage of and you don't have to be rolled and you don't have to be a shrinking violet so that someone just sort of tells you how it's going to be. You can be informed and you can make informed business projections and decisions and say, well, I don't really like that proposal and here's why and I'm going to back it up with some financial models that I got off of the-numbers.com or I'm going to back it up with the release date schedule that I got off of movieweb.com which tells me that we shouldn't release on that weekend because there's five you know, Michael Bay type pictures coming out that weekend that are going to suck up the box office. So you can do it in an intelligent way but sort of stomping your foot and trying to be um, y you know what you imagine uh, a filmmaker to be like or whether people are, are mimicking the, the last uh, sequence of Ed Wood <laughs> is just not the way to go. It's just not going to carry the day and it's not going to work. And that is fabulous advice. And, and what you really are doing and what your book is doing is trying to arm filmmakers with the knowledge and the information and the practices that they have to have and, and, and the practices in place uh, so that they can um, best optimize their chances for success, and I appreciate that. And we're going to come back with you. We've got about a minute remaining, but we're going to come back the next time. And and in, in about 30 seconds, can you just kind of tell us uh, what we're going to talk about the festivals? Well, you know, it's it, it's really a, a great, exciting, uh, fantastic, wonderful experience to attend Sundance or any other festival for the first time. But a lot of people, uh, in the same way that they make a hundred mistakes when they're making their film. Uh, when they attend festivals, they very often can make costly mistakes about where to stay and what to do and where to eat and how to 
compose themselves and how to market their films, whether they're putting up lost dog flyers on every telephone pole or whether they're rushing up to some movie executive they see on the street with, a, with an iPhone that has their film preloaded on it. And they're, they're thrusting this iPhone and some grungy headphones into this person's hand and saying, here, watch my film. I mean, that happens. I've seen that. And it's sort of just grotesque. And it, it kind of is just unseemly. And, and people who have legitimately compelling projects just shouldn't uh, make these gaffes and and uh, you know bad form mistakes to to blow their chances of getting a distribution deal. And we'll talk about that next time. Reed, thank you so much for being here today. I, I think this information is golden, and that people are definitely going to want to hear it as well as read your book. So thank you so much. Happy holidays. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Rex. Thanks and, for having it'll me. Be the, and it'll be the very next interview on Rex Sykes Movie Beat. Um, again, thanks, Reed, for being here and, uh, and for you for listening in. You can go to the iTunes store. You can get this downloaded as a podcast. You can share it with your industry friends and connections. Most importantly, uh, get your movie made. Do it right. Uh, follow the wisest uh, advice. And uh, that's a wrap. <laughs>